0: Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the book of Ezra. To that end, I invite you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 3, as we read the verses 1 through 7, and the sermon is based on these verses. Let us hear the word of God. And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So far the reading of the word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of it to our hearts. Dear friends, believers are people who delight to worship God. They love to to gather together in the courts of the Lord. And this has always been the case. In Psalm 84, the psalmist exclaims, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God." And a few verses later in the same psalm in verse 10, he declares for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Yes, for the believer, worship is everything. It is as dear to him as life itself. And so it's not surprising that almost as soon as the Jewish exiles arrived back in the Promised Land, their first priority was to restore the worship of God in Jerusalem. And we read about that in the words of our text today, Ezra 3, the verses 1 through 7. And it's to these verses that we turn our attention. Our theme is the worship of God restored at Jerusalem. And we'll consider, first of all, the unity that was manifested... Secondly, the rituals that were observed, and thirdly, the preparations that were made. The exiles had just returned to the Promised Land. It must have been a very long and difficult journey for them. They had traveled some 900 miles with their children and livestock and possessions, a journey that probably took around four months. But now, at long last, they had arrived at their destination. And no sooner did they arrive in the Promised Land than they converged on the ruined city of Jerusalem. And we read in verse 1, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Now, you notice references made here to the seventh month. The seventh month which is in our calendar late September or early October was a highly significant month for the Jewish people and that's because three of the great religious festivals of the Jews were held in this month. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. It was also in the seventh month that Solomon gathered the people together to dedicate the first temple. So it was only natural for the Jews to come together during this particular month. And you'll notice what our text says. It says they came together as one man. And that phrase, one man, expresses their unity. It expresses, first of all, that they all came together, young and old, rich and poor, male and female. And it also expresses that they all came together for the same purpose. And what was that purpose? Well, they were going to reinstitute the worship of God, and they were going to start reconstructing the temple. And in anticipation of this, they gathered together in Jerusalem as one man. Now, we can learn several lessons from this. We learned, first of all, that the worship of God must be our number one priority, The events of our text took place probably no more than several months, if not even weeks, after the people arrived back in the Promised Land. That means they were probably very busy. They had homes to buy or to build. They had farms and businesses to set up. They had to establish schools for their children. But they set everything aside in order to come together in Jerusalem to worship God. You see, worship was a priority for them. With all the other things that they had to do, their first priority was to worship God. And I wonder how important worship is to you today. Is coming to church every Lord's Day an important priority for you? Or do you easily allow other things to stand in the way? And do you perhaps use the flimsiest of excuses to stay home? Oh, how much we have to learn from the Jews in our text. They were very busy too. And as we'll see, they also faced great and serious opposition. But their first priority was to come together to worship God. And nothing and no one would prevent them from doing so. Secondly, we learn here that we must worship together in unity, as our text says, as one man. Unity is commanded in the Scriptures. In Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul writes, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Unity is also precious. In Psalm 133, the psalmist says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then he goes on to compare this unity to the precious oil of consecration that poured on the head of Aaron and ran down his beard to his feet, and to the dew of Hermon that descends on the mountains. Of Zion. But this unity is also sadly very fragile. There's so much that can destroy the unity of a congregation. There can be disagreements among members, disagreements about doctrine, disagreements about the preaching, disagreements about certain decisions that the church leaders make. One member may be at odds with another member because of something that they said or did, either recently or in some cases a long time ago, but it was never resolved. And when this happens, then we cannot worship God, at least not the way we should. In Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So what Jesus is saying is that worship, in order for our worship to be acceptable to God, we must be at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, what about you today? Is your worship acceptable to God? Are you worshiping God as one man with your brothers and sisters in Christ in your congregation? If not... If there's something standing between you and another brother or sister in the Lord, you have to do whatever it takes to remove it. Otherwise, as Jesus says, your worship will not be acceptable before God. And so the Jews worshipped God in unity. But how did they worship him? That brings us to our second point. Not long after the people assembled in Jerusalem, we read in verse 2 that the leaders of the people... Joshua, the high priest, together with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the governor, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. But you notice here how both the political and religious leaders work together. Joshua, the religious leader, doesn't build the altar alone. He does so in conjunction with and with the support of Zerubbabel who was the political leader of the people. Now there's a lesson to be learned here for political and religious leaders today. Too often political leaders act as though they have jurisdiction over the church or they ignore the church completely. In fact more and more the voice of the church in the public square is being excluded. But that was not the case here. Here the political and religious branches of society were worked together. Both the political and religious leaders of the people cooperated with each other in building the altar of the Lord. And You'll notice, too, that they rebuilt the altar even before they started rebuilding the temple. Our text actually draws attention to that fact in verse 6. And there we read that from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Now, this may surprise us. After all, the temple was very important to the Jews. It lay at the very heart and center of their religion. But the people in our text offered sacrifices on the altar even before they had begun work on the temple. Now, why did they do this? Well, they did this because they understood their need for atonement. You see, these people knew that they had been sold into captivity for a reason. It's because their forefathers had sinned by worshiping idols. And as a result, they needed their sins forgiven. But in order to have their sins forgiven, they had to offer sacrifices, because it is only by means of the shedding of blood that sins can be forgiven. And the only way they could offer sacrifices is if they had an altar. And so their first order of business was to build an altar for the sacrifices. In fact, these people understood their need for atonement to be so great that they built the altar even though they were afraid. If you look at verse 3, there we read, that the Jews built the altar, and they set it on its bases, meaning they set it on its original foundations, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries. So these Jews were afraid. Now, what were they afraid of? Well, they were afraid of the people of the surrounding nations. You see, during the 70 years that the Jews were in Babylon, people of other tribes and other nations settled in the land alongside the poor Jews who were not taken into captivity. And understandably, they did not take too kindly to these Jews moving into their territory, especially not 50,000 of them. Reading between the lines, it's possible that this created a lot of social and civil unrest in and around Jerusalem, where most of the Jews had settled. It's not unlike the unrest that exists between the Israelis and the Palestinians today. But now these same Jews had not only moved into their territory, now they had rebuilt the altar to the Lord, and they were sacrificing on it. And in verse three, we read that the people offered on the altar the burnt offerings, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. And in verse five, we read they offered sacrifices at every new moon, at all of the appointed feasts of the Lord, as well as free will offerings. What is more, they were also planning to rebuild the temple. And the people of the surrounding nations must have wondered to themselves well, what would this mean for them? Would they be displaced? After all, this was their home, too. To make matters worse, as we hope to learn in the next chapter, they had offered to help the Jews rebuild the temple. But the Jews refused, because they were not part of God's covenant people. And that made them even more upset. And so they did everything in their power to try to put a stop to their work. Now, the Jews knew this. And they also knew that it was quite possible that these nations might attack them at any moment. And yet, despite their fear, they built an altar and sacrificed to God. Now, we're reminded here that when, and we could say especially when, we're engaged in the work of the Lord, there will be opposition. That was true then, and it's still true today. So what should we do in the face of such opposition? Well, we have to do the same as what these Jews did. We must continue to worship God. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry writes this, and I quote, "'Apprehension of danger should stir us up to our duty. "'Have we many enemies? "'Then it is good to have God our friend "'and to keep up our correspondence with him. "'This good use we should make of our fears.'" We should be driven by them to our knees. Well, my friend, what kind of opposition are you facing today? Are there people at work or at school or even members of your own family who mock you for your beliefs? You know, opposition to the church and to Christianity as a whole is increasing today, even in our own country. For all of our talk of inclusion and diversity... Christians are becoming the most marginalized and most oppressed religious group in the world. But, beloved, let us not be afraid. All of this is to be expected. Let us rather continue to do what we have always done for hundreds of thousands of years. Let us continue to worship God. As part of their restoration of worship, therefore, the Jews offered sacrifices to the Lord, but they did something else as well. They also observed the Feast of Tabernacles. We read of that in verse 4. Now the Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of the Ingathering or the Feast of Harvest, was the third and final great feast in the Jewish religious calendar, the other two being the Passover and Pentecost. It normally took place on the 15th day of the seventh month, or late September, early October, and it lasted for seven days, followed by one day of rest. Now, it's significant that the Jews celebrated this particular feast first, and that's because the purpose of this feast was twofold. First of all, it was to provide the people with an opportunity to express their thankfulness to God for the harvest. It was kind of like our Thanksgiving Day, which is why it's called the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Harvest. And after all, did the people not have much to be thankful for? God had preserved them, hadn't he, for 70 years in Babylon. And now they were back in the promised land, as he had promised, ready to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Whoever would have thought that such a thing would be possible? No one. And they realized this was a gift of God's grace, and so they gave thanks to God. The other purpose of this feast was to commemorate the wandering of the people of Israel in the wilderness. And so one of the features of this feast was the fact that all of the people were required to live in booths made of tree branches for a period of seven days. Which is why it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And This was a reminder to them that this world was not their home. They were but pilgrims and strangers passing through the wilderness of this world to the ultimate promised land, which is heaven, the very dwelling place of God. Now, the Jews in our text needed to be reminded of this. They were home, but the ultimate promised land was yet awaiting them. This land was not their ultimate home. Therefore, they should be careful not to hammer their tent pegs too deeply into this soil, for God had something much better in store for them. Now, the same is true for us today, isn't it? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, this world is not your home, even though sometimes we live as though it is. No, God has something much better in store for those who believe on his name. One day when the Lord returns we will take possession of it. And that will be the ultimate feast of ingathering, when believers from every tongue and tribe and nation under heaven will be gathered together before the throne of God, and they shall enter into the place that he has prepared for them from all eternity. Not a booth, not a small tent made of tree branches, but a glorious mansion in heaven above. And so we see that the Jews restored not just the sacrifices, but also the feast days. And they did so, you'll notice, according to the word of God. In fact, we read of that several times in these verses. In verse 2, we read that Joshua and Zerubbabel offered sacrifices on the altar as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And then again in verse 4, we read, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings on the number required by ordinance for each day. So the Jews were determined, you see, to worship God, not according to their own whims and desires, but only according as he had ordained in his word. And the church today needs to take instruction from this. There's a lot of confusion in the church today as to what is worship. Most churches today have introduced all kinds of things into the worship service that simply do not belong there. And why is that? Because they've abandoned the principle that God must be worshipped according to his word. My friends, let us not follow this lead. Let us worship God only as he has commanded in his word, for this is the only worship that is acceptable to him. As part of the restoration of their worship, therefore the Jews restored the sacrificial system and began once again to observe the feast days. But they did something else as well. They also displayed their resolve. And that brings us to our third and final point. The Jews were off to a very good start. Clearly, they had learned the lesson of the captivity. And they were determined to keep the law of Moses and worship God and God alone as he himself has prescribed in his word. But was this only temporary? Did they do these things merely for old times' sake? Was this just a trip down memory lane, so to speak? After the festivities were over, would they simply go back to their homes and live for themselves and the things of this world, as their forefathers had done many times before? Well, the answer to that question is not at all. And we know that because of what we read in verse 7. There we read these words. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. This verse describes the preparations that the Jews made for the reconstruction of the temple which is described more fully in the following verses of this chapter. We read here that they hired masons and carpenters. They made a deal with the people of Tyre and Sidon, located on the north of the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They would give them food and drink and oil in exchange for logs, which they were to cut down in Lebanon and float down the coast of the Mediterranean to Joppa and then transport them inland Jerusalem now what does all of this show this shows us that these people were resolved they were going to rebuild the temple and they were going to restore the worship of God as Cyrus and ultimately God had commanded them now in so doing they unwittingly foreshadowed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for he did more than anyone to restore the true worship of God He upbraided the religious leaders and others of his day for their legalism, for their hypocrisy, and their reliance on their works. He restored the true meaning of the Sabbath day. He taught that he taught the woman at the well what kind of worshippers God is looking for. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And that Soon the time would come, he said, when, when God would not be worshipped in a temple, either in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. He himself set the example. He was the ultimate worshipper of God, wasn't he? His entire life was devoted to the worship of God. And through his word and Holy Spirit, he transformed sinners into true worshippers of God. And in a sense, he also rebuilt the temple of God, didn't he? He himself said concerning the temple of Herod, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And he did. For after he died on the cross, his body, to which the temple pointed, and in which it found its ultimate fulfillment, lay in the tomb for three days. But on the third day he arose, the temple that was destroyed by his enemies was restored. And he lives forever at the right hand of his Father until the day that he comes again. In the meantime, he is building his temple. For every sinner who repents of his sin and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ becomes a living stone in the temple of his body. And one day this temple will be complete. And those who are in Christ shall live and reign with him forever. Yes, the worship of God was restored in Jerusalem. The altar was rebuilt. The sacrifices were offered. The feast days were celebrated. Preparations for the reconstruction of the temple had been made. It was truly a joyful chapter in the history of Israel. A new beginning with God. Maybe there's someone listening to my voice today who needs a new beginning with God. You've wandered far away from him. You do not feel close to him. You long for the day when your faith in him was stronger and your love for him was deeper. Well, our text chapter shows us the way, doesn't it? It begins with worship. After the Lord took David's infant son away by death as punishment for his sin with Bathsheba, David mourned for seven days, but at the end of those seven days, he got up and he washed and he ate And where did he go? He went into the tabernacle of the Lord to worship him. And do you remember his servants were aghast at this? They didn't understand it. But David did. He understood that the secret to beginning fresh with God begins with worship. And the Jews understood this as well. So if you desire a new beginning with God, my friend, this is where it starts. It starts with worshiping him according to his word. Such people are favored by the Lord. Such people will be blessed by the Lord. And they shall dwell in the land and worship him forever and ever. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth. 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at Banner of Truth Radio, that's all one word, Banner of Truth Radio, Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.